listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. I was sitting there the other day, I was going through my closet, and Joanne made me get rid of a bunch of t-shirts. And I had this t-shirt from 10 years ago. I got it Hot Topic online, and it was Gary Newman uh, with a two-way... <laughs> Army. And I sit there and it was so worn out. It's like, you know, you know those t-shirts where it uh, it starts fading? It was faded out and it started getting yellow. So I had to get rid of it. And I was bummed because I would have worn it today, even though it would have looked like crap. Because my <laughs> guest, he has a, uh, you know, I listened to his album. He has a great album that's coming out on uh, May 21st. And he has a special concert coming out June 17th. And my guest is Gary Newman. How you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Thank you. I got I to gotta tell you, I, um, I, the album... First, we're going to talk about that. The album is so good. I, I, I listened to it, and the song Intruder, which is a title track, gives me goosebumps. I don't know why. I don't know if it's the, the beat to it, but I was listening to it. It really made my hair on my arm raise. What what was your... I mean, is that the, the goal when you do music, just to make it really affect people like it does? I, I think so. You know, it, it's a very personal thing when you start writing it you know i'm not i'm not particularly sitting there thinking about anything beyond you know is this the best melody i can come up with is this the best groove or the best atmosphere or whatever you know you start to think about the effect it might have a little bit further further down the line you know to begin with you're, you're just <laughs> I, I i have real confidence issues you know i'm not particularly confident so Half the time when I'm working in the studio, it's it's just trying to, you know, not let yourself panic, really. You know, if things don't, the ideas that you come up with don't work instantly, there's a tendency to panic about that and get really down about it. And it's a, you know, it's a constant worry. So it's pretty self-indulgent to begin with, if I'm, if I'm honest. You know, it's all about, am I, am I getting the best out of the day, really? You know, and then as the song builds and you start to add your layers and the atmospheres come, and certainly when you get towards the lyric end of it, which is sort of the last thing I do, you, you're thinking then about you know a, f- a fair few things really. It's something like Intruder, you know, when you're talking about climate change, and obviously there's you know there, there, there's something sort of important really. Not that I don't say Intruder is anything important, but the subject itself is important, and so you're aware of what you're saying and trying to make sure you. You're, you're putting your thoughts over correctly and then of course you're thinking about how it's going to work live you know what sort of your what lighting ideas you could have for it what the visuals would be so you you, you go through this whole series of, of of sort of escalating thoughts about you know, the song itself but no initially you're really just sitting down there trying to not make a mess of it really it's it's funny you say that you think about the lights and things like that and stuff like that because I know screenwriting friends who when they write it they they envision who would be in it and stuff like that and how it, instead of just going to the story so you think of your stage show because you know I, I think about back to when uh, Cars the video came out you're under that 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 triangle of light I mean have you always visually incorporated the scene to the music you've written. Yeah, mostly. Uh, I think because you know, musically you're trying to create atmospheres and your know, moods. You know, so you, you want you want the music and the lyric combination to create a certain mood, and then of course the visuals need to need to accompany that. You know, I think it's a it, you know not just from being on stage, but the 
you know, the, the artwork for the album and the singles that you do, it, it, if you do it well, then they kind of feed into each other a little bit. And I haven't always done it well. I've made some absolute nightmares with that, really. You know, but I try to. I always try to make sure that the visual side of it matches the music, the music matches the lyrics and the performances and so on. And that goes right through to stage and the, even down to the clothes that you wear on stage. You know, the whole thing is just one big project. It all starts with a melody, um, but ultimately ends up you stand on a stage with a band and you, know, you look in the part uh, and performing the songs in an appropriate way. But you know, it, it, it stages really. You know, one sort of one thing leads to another. Now, with Intruder, what is your game plan when you sit down to write a new album? Do you sit there and say, okay, I'm going to do 20 songs, maybe cut it down to 10? Or how do you formulate it? How, where do you come from when you? When you sit there and go, okay, it's time for something new, and it's got to be sort of scary because, as you said, you're you know you're a little nervous and insecure at times. How is it when you finally sit there and go, I got to kick this out, or is it just something that you him and haul around for a while, but eventually go, all right, I, I got to stop screwing around. Well, there's a yeah, there's a fair amount of thought put into it before you start. Usually, you know about you know what you want to write about, what things are you concerned about that would be interesting to write about you know, or, or not um, with Intruder I, when I knew I wanted to, the, the one before Savage had a climate change um, connection, it was a little bit sci-fi set in the future but it was based around the, you know, the, the, the conversation of climate change and I wanted to stay with that I just didn't know quite how to do it um, so I had all these different ideas floating around but then my, my youngest daughter wrote a poem about two years ago called Earth when she was 11 um, and it was brilliant you know, it was a, a kid's version of, of how the earth must feel at the moment and it's talking to the other planets and saying how horrible people are and you know how sad it is and disappointed with us and, and, and it was you know a child's version of that particular you know, sort of conversation but I thought it was amazing and and that gave me the idea for Intruder I thought that's it you know that's how I can stay connected with the climate change um, topic and yet do something different to Savage. So I, I decided to make Intruder entirely um, my ver you know, my idea of what I think the Earth would say if it could speak. If it could explain how it feels at the moment, um, you know, what would it say? And so that that's that's where it started. So when I sat down to start writing the first song, that that idea for it, that sort of theme for it, was already in place. That that isn't always the case with, with Savage before. I didn't have an idea. In fact, the first song I wrote for Savage was actually about how terrified I was trying to come up with an idea for Savage and the pressure that comes with that, you know, when you, when you don't know what you're going to do. Um, but I was writing a book at the time. I, I never finished it, but I was writing a book called Ruin. Um, and I started to steal ideas from that just to give me something to work with to get going, just as something, just as a starting point, you know. And that was to do with climate change. Um, and, and then, as you know, as, as the previous elections, you know, the Trump one was getting underway, and there was, you know, Trump was talking about coming out of the Paris Accord and so on. It seemed quite relevant, and and I was, you know, slightly nervous about what was going on. So I just kept on doing that. I kept on writing more and more songs about you know, with a climate change theme to it, and that became the theme of the album. So that one I kind of just fell into a little bit, you know, based on the circumstances around at the time. This one was a little bit more focused from the beginning. Now, when you start putting the material together, 
with your writing process, do you know if the song's a gem or, you know, or do you sit there and get halfway through it and go, oh man, I, I can't finish it. I mean, because a lot of times people will, they, I think for me, writer's block is when, not when people can't write anything, in my eyes, it's when people try to write something and they just think it sucks. I used to do stand-up <laughs> comedy, so I'd write a joke and I'd go, this joke sucks. And you'd be going on stage and you go, none of this stuff is funny, even though it's worked. And so it, I think it's mentally. For you, do you just plow through when you hit that, if you feel that it's not a, if it's not right to you, do you just finish it or do you just go, screw it and toss it? It depends what it is. It, it's, it's very, very common for me, in fact, normal for me to have um, three or four, five, even more different choruses, for example, within one song or verses. You know, so <laughs> it can get a little bit confusing at times. You, 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 you'll do something. You know, you're quite, you're reasonably happy with a verse. Say, you get to the chorus and you write something, and it works. But you just think, oh, I'm pretty sure I could do better than that. So you do another one, and you still don't feel good enough. You do another one, so you end up with this ridiculous file on the screen. You know, all you know, groups and completely different choruses, and you're switching backwards and forwards. And at times, you can just get completely lost with that. We, we did. Um, a couple of albums back, I did a song called Here in the Black, and I think we had 33 different versions of it before we decided on what we want. And most of that was my fault. Just could not make my mind up. And you know, we ended up using the very first chorus I wrote for that, which is just typical, isn't it? So, so that, but that happens a lot, you know, and, and it's indecision. It, it's the, I think it is the lack of confidence still because you you just can't quite accept that you can't do something better than that. Everything everything feels not quite good enough. And I think that's one of the problems. In, it's the good and the bad side of having a fragile confidence. You know, a fragile confidence means that you're you're very unsure of yourself all the time, but it also means that you try really, really hard to find something better than what you've just done. You don't accept the first, second, third, fourth, or even tenth thing that comes along. You know, you're just constantly searching to try to make it better. So that has to make for a better album, I would I would think. You know, but it's a fairly tortuous process. So I we was talking before about, you know, when you're gonna start an album. I, I'm I'm a nightmare. I, mean, I I push them back and push them back and say, all right, I'm gonna start Monday and then don't you know and it's not because i'm lazy it's because i'm terrified of starting the process because i know what's coming emotionally the whole sort of um you know tortured journey if you like without trying to sound pretentious but i know i know that's coming and each album is a little bit worse than the one before i've often likened it to standing at the foot of a mountain looking up you know that's your challenge it's going to be a very steep and difficult climb but, you know, you'll get there eventually, but there's lots of dangers along the way. Each album, it feels like that mountain gets a little bit steeper and a little bit taller. <laughs> and and it's uncomfortable. And I, I kind of, I do, I, I, I push it back. And the problem with that is, I, you know, there, there is a deadline for these things. You know, might, the next one's supposed to be ready by December. Right. I'm not, I haven't started it yet. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. And so I just build up this pressure on myself which makes it even worse because then I go in and I'm not confident with what I'm doing the deadline approaching makes that pressure and uncertainty even worse and it's just this horrible spiral and yet I do get them done it's it's like I force pressure on myself hated every minute of it but seem to work best when I'm under it 
Yeah, that happens a lot too. With like with writing, you know, I want to write something and I'll just I'll clean my desk fifty times instead of actually sitting my ass in the chair <laughs> and writing because even though I have it all formulated in my head, when I sit down, I go, hey, I don't think it's to be that good. But then once you start doing it, you go, oh wow, this is this is a good process. But I think it's just something that you know any of us who have performed, we're insecure. I mean, we wouldn't be on stage if we weren't. Now you know my insecurity comes from I was born legally blind in one eye, so I have a lazy eye. Now I'm used to it, so it doesn't bother me. And, you know, I'm bald. I always say I'm bald and I have a lazy eye, but I have a beautiful wife, so I did something right. <laughs> For you, where, where, does your, where does your lack of confidence come from? Have you looked back and said, have you pinpointed it, or how have you, and how have you dealt with it? Um, I, I, well, I deal with it simply by just working and just getting on with it, really, because it is what it is. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. If you're not confident, you're not confident. Um, you know, I, I get quite a lot of praise from people that I really admire, and and you would think that would really make a difference. You know, you know, people talk about me sort of being a pioneer and innovative and all these lovely things, and it's really really cool. But it doesn't actually do anything for the confidence. If anything, it loads more pressure on you because you kind of got something to live up to. Um, I think the problem is, and I, I think where it comes from is that there are people that I admire and I absolutely don't believe that I've ever come close to being as good as they are. So you feel inferior from the moment you start, really. <laughs> uh, you know, and there, there have been a number of bands or artists over the years that I've admired at you know, different points of my career. And I've always set them as a standard that I'd like to reach and never have. You know, so you, you always feel as if you're second best to, or third best even, you know, to whatever else is out there. Even if it does well, I mean, the last album got to number two in Britain, so it did really, really, really well, and I was really proud of it. But you know, it doesn't change the way you feel yourself. You know, I remember sort of back in when I started, I was I was I had like double number ones here in Britain, you know, twice in the same year. You know, it was phenomenally successful, but it didn't change the way I felt about myself. You know. I, it didn't make me feel any better or any more confident or any more talented, you know, than than I did before. I'm, it's how you feel about it. So my wife's like this with the way she looks, you know. I mean, I think she's beautiful. Everyone we know thinks that she's beautiful, but she looks in the mirror and she doesn't like it. You know, it doesn't matter how many times she's told and how many people try to chat her up, you know, when we're out. None of that doesn't matter at all. She says, I've got my eyes and I know what I see, and I don't like it. I'm kind of the same way about the music. It's not that I don't like it, but I, I don't have that huge confidence that comes from it, successful or not. And I, but I, I really, really don't think it's a bad thing. You know, I talk about it too much, probably, because I do think it makes me work harder, So I, and I think that's a benefit. Now, the album, I know you're going to be performing it uh, online concert in June, but it's June uh, 16th? June 17th. You've been doing a June 17th, the concert. Now, when you perform this album, when it's the first time you're performing it live in front of, well, people are watching it, where will your confidence be then? Because, you know, I know when I used to perform and I would go on stage and I would always get that nervous energy. And then I always think, oh, I'm going to forget my act because it's something that you just, <laughs> and you, you put a block up. But you don't. Once you get on stage, you go into autopilot. How do you think your confidence will 
react to you doing this for the first time, even though people seem to love the album and you know it's good stuff? I'm all right. When it, when it comes to being on stage and actually getting out there in front of people doing it, that's where I'm most comfortable. So I, I, I won't have a problem with that. I, I don't. I don't expect to have a problem with that anyway. The, the nervousness comes from actually being in the studio, your own judgment, you know, you know, and then of course a little bit when it's released as to what people are going to say about it. But strangely enough, less of, of that. You know, re reviews, good or bad, um, well, bad, <laughs> uh, don't really bother me too much. You know, when I started, when I had a first sort of five ten years even i think i could count the good reviews on one hand and have fingers to spare you know it wasn't it, i wasn't particularly popular in in the media even though it was doing well I, I, and i'm I mean, i've got asperger's so which again i think is a bit of a gift you know because it enables you to just just kind of push those sort of things to one side you know you're sort of driven and focused and you're obsessive about where you're going and what you're doing confident or not and, and so the reviews come in and, and they kind of just feel like a like a nice little cherry along the way should you be able to get it. It doesn't really change that much. So the, the confidence, the nervousness, it's, just, it's sort of much more internal, I think, than related to what people are going to say about it. And as I say, by the time I get on stage, you know, I'm used to it by then. You know, my, the album would have been around for some time. I'd have played it, I'd have been in rehearsals with it for some time, I'd have got comfortable with the way the band are playing and you know, their feedback is, is, is very important to me. So by the time we actually get to do it, I, I would have chosen the songs that work, you know, rejected the ones that don't in a live environment. Um, and I'm probably, I'm probably enjoying myself quite a bit by then, actually. Now you mentioned about the reviews and I, I've watched your documentary, uh, Android and La La Land, and you said how, you know, people were, were mean in the beginning and, you know, and I think about sometimes, you know, when you hear bad reviews, and this is before Twitter. I mean, Twitter's just, people are just assholes. I mean, you know, yeah. people, people can just be awful. But yeah. as a young person, because you were very young when you got your success, when you get a bad review, did you let it stay with you? Or did you did it just, like, wreck you for a second? Like, when you look at the paper and it says something and you... you how did you react to that? Because we all, you know, if we get scolded by our wives and they yell at us, I go like, oh, God, I, I did something wrong and I feel bad. How did you react to these reviews when it was obvious you were popular, the music was selling, it was just some idiot writing who had a chip on his shoulder? How does a young person react to that? Well, pretty much that same way, actually. I, I, I was aware that it was damaging... In, in that it wasn't it certainly wasn't helping me to expand the audience you know and it was polarizing opinion you know you know plenty of people that really loved what i was doing plenty of people that didn't and it tended to polarize that and harden those likes or dislikes so it, so it wasn't it wasn't helpful but it really didn't do that much um to me you know they bothered you know you got 10 minutes half an hour and you're a little bit pissed and disappointed you know um but then after that you you just kind of roll over it. I was saying before about the Asperger's thing. You know, Asperger's, oh God, I can't speak for all Asperger's people. For me, it enabled, I'm able to take an emotion, like a, a disappointment like that, kind of wrap it in a little bow and just move it to one side. Just 
put that over there. Now I'll either deal with that later or I just won't ever deal with it at all. But it's not in the way now. It's not an obstacle to where I to where I need to go next or what I'm going to do with the rest of the day even. You know, it's certainly not what I'm going to do with the rest of the career. And so I think that's a very, very useful thing. You know, I, I mean, Asperger's for me has is, is just given me many things that I think are incredibly useful if you're going to do this for your life, you know. And there is a very small price to pay, as far as I'm concerned, which I'm not particularly good socially. I'm not a great small talker, you know. I'm, I'm uncomfortable around people for the main. Um, but that's it, you know. And My wife can talk for a for Olympic sport, you know. So we go out together and I just stand next to her. She does all the talking. I stand there being a bit nervous. Yeah, you know, that's not a big deal, really. I'll get, you know, that's that's easy in a way. You know, I just stand in her shadow and I'm very happy to be there. She's got this huge personality that everybody loves. And um, so I don't have to do much talking. You know, she does it all for me. And that's the only downside of, for me at least, of, of Asperger's, you, you know. so But it gives me all this other stuff, you know, this ability to move emotions to one side and like a snowplow just plowing through to wherever it is you want to go you know and, and the, the focus that it gives you and, and the, the you know, they talk about you know having obsessive tendencies as an Asperger's person as if that's a bad thing you know I don't think it is a bad thing you know I was talking about somebody the other day about this you know if you're on an airplane and you're you know your pilot is obsessed about flying well that's a good thing you know that's what you want isn't it if my pilot was at Asperger's and he was absolutely obsessed about flying, well, I'm, I feel pretty safe. You know, you know, it's something sort of a bit ambivalent about it. Yeah, it's all right. You know, should have been a train driver. You don't want that. You know, so, you know, I, I think obsession is a good thing when it when it's used, in, in, you know, in an area where, where it would be, you know, a necessary requirement. And music, a career in music, in my opinion, is one of those things. You know, it's good to be obsessed about music if this is going to be your whole life it's a good thing it's not a bad thing so it's not a, a hand a mental handicap or a mental health issue it's a gift with a very small price to pay now you mentioned your wife and um as i said we see her in a documentary and your kids are adorable and they're always eating ice cream in that documentary <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> how did you meet your wife tell the people the story it's very interesting about my wife yeah how you met her um, well, Gemma was Gemma was a fan um, since she was about eleven. Apparently, I met her when she was eleven, although I don't remember it. Um, and then, but I got to, as she got older, um, sort of into sort of late teens, early early twenties, and that. I, I, you know, she's very, 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 very good looking. And so we, you know, we, you would notice she would always be down the front, and you know, at the end of the show, she'd get her autograph signed. But what? stood out about her was she was she never sort of hung about she didn't do the groupy thing she didn't come back to the hotel she didn't do any of that she would just turn up you know so it, it's always slightly disappointing but <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what, but it but it noticed you know I, I noticed that and I thought it was lovely and then at one point uh, I think the end of 91 there was a tour and she hadn't been around and it was unusual so I thought I just lost another fan because it was a very bad period. You know, I was losing fans, you know, a thousand a day. 
I thought, ah, oh, it's a shame. She's obviously gone. And then she did turn up towards the end of it. Um, uh, um, anyway, cut long story short, she was leaving. Somebody grabbed her. She was crying. And so they said, to, you know, they brought her to me and said, you know, to have a chat. And I said, you know, you know, what's what's going on? You know, you, you know, why are you upset? You've not been around. You know, you know what's happened? And that was the most I'd ever said to her up until then. It had just been, you watch, you know, what's your name? Sign an autograph. And it, and her mum was in hospital with cancer. Her mum was dying, and this was the first time she'd been out for a long, long time. And it was really sad. And, and we actually had a long conversation, you know, for a while. And then and then she went again. And then a few months later, I heard that her mum had died. So uh, I, I I looked her up in the fan club, you know, and I'm, you're not allowed to do that, your data <laughs> privacy and all that. But I looked her up in the fan club and got her phone number. I rang her up, and she didn't believe it was me. She put the phone down to start with. Thought it was somebody playing a, a horrible trick. Um, but anyway, convinced her it was me. She was asking me questions. You know, <laughs> what's your favourite colour? You know, she'd got all the answers for the enemy, or you know, and they were all wrong. Just, and I'm saying, no, <laughs> I know the answer. It's me. Anyway, so eventually she believed who I was, and so I said, look, I'm, I've got this long job. I'm doing a radio station up north somewhere and radio interview. So I said, do you want to come along? Um, and she did. And, and that was that, at the end of that trip, you know, two or three hours there, two or three hours back, I just thought she was amazing. And that was it, been together ever since. So, so nearly nearly 30 years now. Now, you moved to LA, it's funny, because I'm from right outside Philadelphia, New Jersey, and I lived in LA for 20 years. I just moved back four years ago to this area. First of all, your house looks like a castle and then document it's amazing did you did you decorate that or did it come to decorated you gotta tell me about this house because i was looking at it and i was like this house is cool it's all hell yeah yeah so that's thanks to my wife again actually we, you know we were looking at houses which were, were in our price range which is the way you normally do it right and then Gemma wanted to get involved and they said well there you go this is our price range here off you go she ignored that completely put in prices that we absolutely couldn't afford, you know, stupid money. And that, and that house that you're talking about came up. So I said, you know, well, there you go. I told you not to do that because now you're going to see things that are amazing and we can't afford them. But the things we can afford will now look a bit shit. You know, so what, what was the point d- doing that? <laughs> she said, well, <laughs> all right. And then she, um, she said, well, let's go out and just drive past it. So, all right then, but we can't go in, you know, because we can't afford it. It's embarrassing. So we... we Drove past it, stopped outside of it, and then I noticed that the the real estate people that we were dealing with were were there as well. And she'd sneakily arranged a viewing without telling me. So oh, you sneaky cow. So we're walking in, and I'm saying to her, "You whatever you do, you got to be cool, you know, because the most that we can do is make a stupid low offer, you know, and just to sort of disguise my embarrassment. This is really really embarrassing." So we, so I said, "Just be cool, right?" find lots of things wrong with it we get to the front door and a man opens it and it is amazing to be fair but she just screamed and ran off into the house and all i could hear for the next 10 minutes was you know wow whoa, whoa, look at whoa, this you know absolutely not cool whatsoever nothing wrong with it everything was amazing and she let them know that so we made the stupid offer and they rejected it understandably and so this whole saga began and it went back and forth. Two other people tried to buy it before we eventually got it. But we did. Eventually, we got it for the stupid offer. I think the people were so sick of being um, messed about by then. You know, they, they 
we've been lingering in the background all this time for about a year I think we eventually got it so really 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 lucky but yes it looks like a castle it's got what's amazing about it was it looked like a really good version of what I've been trying to do with my house in England before we left so I used to have swords everywhere and try to make it look like an old sort of medieval place but not very well we find this place in Los Angeles, and <laughs> you know, of all places, you you find something that looks more English than what's in England. And it already had swords everywhere, and it's, it's got secret staircases, and there's trapdoors in the floor that go to little, like a little crawl space that goes to another room that only children can fit into. It's unbelievable, unbelievable place. Really, really lucky to find it. Now, your house in England, did you live on a farm because there was, like, livestock walking around? Because it's something about, you know, like, I, I interviewed Martin Chambers, and now he lives in a house out in the country. And James Atkins, he lives out in the country. And, and Anthony, uh, Tony Hadley lives out in the country. What is it with all you rock stars moving to the country? It's getting away from people, I think. It is for me anyway. You know, I can't, I don't like cities. I don't like group. don't like crowds of people. don't like noise. You know, your, your touring life is full on, full on noise, crowds, you know, absolutely pulled this way and that. And I think when you're not doing that, you need some kind of a sanctuary to go to, to just feel the world again, you know, smell the air and see the sky and walk amongst trees and just be at one with it all. Because outside of that, it's pretty full on. Just for me, I don't. I can't speak for all the others, but that's what it is for me. Don't like, don't like cities at all. We we did have sheep in England. We we didn't have a farm. We had about seven and a half acres, and it was beautiful. You know, a little stream ran through it, little wooden bridges. We had a, a woodland that had bluebells all through it. It was really, really, you know, picture postcard, pretty. Um, but it took a lot of mowing. I bought a tractor and I used to go driving around mowing it, and it should be really boring. So we bought sheep. And the sheep just mow it for you. It's really, really <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's not very high tech synthesizer rock and roll, is it? But I love my sheep though. I mean, I really love them. We rescued them. We 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 found some woman that was going to send them off to be killed, and we said we'll buy them. So we bought eight, and nine turned up. You get you buy eight, get one free. <laughs> it's like a, not a baker's dozen. It's like a sheep <laughs> top hat, you know. <laughs> yeah, but they were amazing. We, yeah, you'd wake up in the morning, and there'd be sheep just walking past the garden. I loved it, absolutely loved it. We still got them. We, we when we moved to America, we we gave them to a friend of ours who rescues horses, mainly horses and donkeys. But she said she'd take our sheep for us, and uh, they've been up there ever since. Now you moved there to get away from people. But then you moved to L.A. And I try to tell people, since I moved back, people complain about the traffic, you know, in New Jersey. I go, no, no, no. I said, you know, I lived in L.A. I said, get on the 405 when it takes you two and a half hours to go 12 miles. You know, yeah. you don't know what traffic is. So for <laughs> someone who's adverse to people, why did you choose L.A.? Well, I've, you know, I've been all over the world. You know, I've been in hundreds of different cities all over the world. And... And apart from downtown in Los Angeles, it, it is the most un-city-like city. It's a very sprawling, largely single-story um, environment. So you still got big sky. You, know, you can be standing out in your street and look up, and it's nearly all sky. And the weather's beautiful, obviously, and you know it's nearly always blue. Um, so it was it was a compromise between what I really wanted and 
what, what my wife wanted, actually. I mean, Gemma's always wanted to live in Los Angeles anyway. Um, and also the school played a part in it. Now, my kids go to a, a school called a Steiner, Waldorf Steiner School. It's a particular kind of education that they were doing in Britain um, and followed here. Um, and so we found this school that they could go to and it pretty much drew a circle around that. So we need to find something within that circle or else you're going to be spending three or four hours a day just driving to and from school. So that was the thing, really. And we were really lucky to find the castle house in that in that fairly small circle. Um, but but Gemma is now itching to go further away. You know, the, the, the joys of having neighbours are really becoming a problem of late. So, I mean, I'm, I'm all for staying there until the kids finish school, but she wants out now, so it's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> so, how did, you know, you, you've had this long-lasting career. I saw it was, what, 41 years ago, uh, We Are Glass came out. Um, and now, how did you start your music career? You know, it's funny, I talk to some people and they, they see something, like I talked to little Steven yesterday, and he talked about how the Beatles changed his life well in our generation you know there wasn't a beatles what made what gravitated you towards music it actually started when i was four four or five i think it's four uh i saw a, i was watching tv with my mum and dad and there was a guitar player came on that had an electric guitar i think a fender stratocaster actually um first time i sort of really been aware that guitars could be electric and it had dials on it and a switch and i just thought it was the coolest looking thing i'd ever seen and it was that that was the first thing that sucked me into it and it so it wasn't even music as such but the technology that made the music i was fascinated by the fact that you could you plug the guitar in it seemed an amazing thing to me um so i got a guitar but i didn't get an electric one i got a little baby acoustic and but I tied a bit of string to it to make it look like an electric in my young mind. Um, but the, so the fascination was there, but it was all, it was kind of music via technology. So, you know, when I think about that, my gravitating towards electronic music in the late seventies sort of is quite a natural path, I think, because it, it was, all, for me, it was more about noises and sounds than it was about scales and technique you know, I mean, I'm still a terrible player. I mean, I'm a pretty rubbish guitar player, pretty rubbish keyboard player, really. I'm just enough to be able to write songs because my interest is not in that. My interest is in the sounds that things make. And electronic music offers me all of that. But it's not just synthesizers. And your synthesizers are just a, one part of, of, you know, of where the noises come from. I would spend, usually spend when I make an album, you know, hours and hours just walking around with a recorder, just recording everything that I can find, you know, sometimes you know, slamming doors, you find a door with a really good squeak in it and record that. And, and then you have this sort of palette of interesting sounds, which you then manipulate and find a way of making them musical. That's kind of the, the challenge of it. And the fun of it is how do you make these weird noises into music? You know, well, you adapt them and then you incorporate them into more conventional guitar, you know, keyboard type things. And you build up this, hopefully, this sort of unique sound, you know, which is your own style. So that, but so my 
my sort of evolution into becoming involved in music was a fairly slow one. Yeah, it was actually technology first. And uh, uh, the, when the monkeys, you remember the monkeys? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I'm old enough to to have been a fan of the monkeys when they come out, and that was the first thing that really that's really started to t- sort of turn me on to music. And then the band that really did it, the band that made me think music will be a career and really started to make me think about melody and tunes and songwriting, which is when it really started to change, was uh, T-Rex in the early 70s. I love T-Rex. And that, that really was, they, they kind of became the, 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 the symbol, if you like, of what I was trying to achieve, the whole sort of rock star thing. Now, what made you switch from guitar to synthesizers i mean it's something that you know i mean i think about it it's guitarists you know a lot of guys play lead guitar they always are like i'm the lead guitarist you know it's one of those things like it's it's that it's the lights on you and people start playing guitar and practicing they start getting very good at it what made you switch to a synthesizer well i went to the first recording session for the first album i was going to make i've been i got signed to to a company called Beggs Banquet in Britain, a really, really big label now, but that was a tiny little thing then. Um, we were doing a, we were a punk band, effectively. I was in a band called Chibi Army, three-piece punk band. So we were going into the studio to record our debut album, which was pretty much going to be our live set, 10, 12 punk songs. Go to the studio, same one that I made my demo in, actually. Um, and while the other two boys in the band were unloading the gear i went in, into the studio to introduce us and you know speak to the man that was going to engineer it and while i was talking to him i noticed there was a synthesizer in the corner called a mini moog never seen a real one before never been that interested in electronic music to be honest you know i'd like some of it but never enough to sort of turn me onto it to want to make my own electronic music but i was fascinated by this machine because just like the guitar before covered in dials and covered in switches and it just looked awesome you know really interesting and i said yeah do you, do you mind if i have a go with that I mean, i've never never played a synthesizer never played a keyboard really and he said yeah okay so he plugged it in turned it on and as luck would have it the sound that it had been left on but whoever had used it before was this amazing low growling raw kind of thing i mean the room shook you know one finger one finger on one key, more power than all the guitars in the world playing together. You know, I couldn't believe it. It was a life-changing moment for me. And I was absolutely blown away by it. And there were plenty of other sounds that were rubbish. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it can make equally terrible sounds and it can make good ones. But that, it was it was an amazing experience. So I spent the next kind of half an hour or so just fiddling with these dials I, I didn't have a clue what any of it did but just fiddling around with them and trying to find you know what other cool noises it could make the, the two that were unloading the car got really grumpy with me because i was supposed to be helping and then eventually you know they, they walked in and said right we've set everything up you know in this fairly sneery kind of tone and i said well everything's different everything I said, this thing here, I said, we're going to use this. I said, all the guitars, you're going to replace everything. We're not replace them, but we're going to add this new layer. You know, a lot of the guitar things that we, we, we worked on for these songs, this machine would do it and it would sound better. Um, so we just did it on the fly for the next three or four days. We recorded, you know, pretty much the same songs, but with synthesizers rather than guitars, a bit of a mix. 
took that album back to the record company, which is not what they wanted at all. Got into a massive argument with them because I was convinced that electronic music was the future. I really was, you know, and I didn't realize anyone else was doing it in, a, in, a, in that particular way. Um, they were, you know, I was not the first to find it by a long way, but I thought I was in, in that moment. And I was saying to them, look, we have a chance here of being right at the front end of something revolutionary. So this is going to change music. Uh, and we're right here now, you know, and we could put out an album right now in 1978, which is right at the front end of something. And I said, and you want me to do a punk album, which is already dead and dying on its feet. You, you know, I said, I just can't do it. And we, we actually got, we actually stood up to each other at one point, we have a proper fight. It was really, got really childish, you, you know, um, but I was convinced, I was absolutely convinced, you know, but I didn't know that other people were out there already that had been doing it before me that were better than <laughs> I was. I, I didn't realise that, you know, I, I, I really thought I discovered something. Um, anyway, so they put the album out because they, 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 they I, I think because it didn't have enough money to put me back in again. I think, you know, one of, the, one of the rare times of being with a label with no money worked to your advantage. Um, so they put the album out called Chubai Army yeah, and um, it did alright didn't do anything special but it didn't get you know murdered and slagged into the ground and so they let me do another one which I did within a few months and that one went to number one and that had a number one single off of it and so it, it went from you know weird little discovery to you know, rock star in about six months it was a, amazing and then everyone discovered you <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like it's like, it's like in Hollywood. Went, it's in Hollywood. The overnight success. The guy's been acting yeah. for ten years, and all of a sudden, oh, he's like, "No, I, I've been around for ten years. You guys just haven't yeah. seen me." Oh, it's so all these people that I've never met, you know, say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I've been watching you." No, you, no, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you're such a liar. Now, what was it like? I know you're on top of the pops, right? What is that like for a musician? Because everyone says that's like. You know, in, in America, it used to be, you know, if you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, it could make your career. How did that, re how did you, how did the people react to you when you were on that show? Well, I went on there as a complete unknown. Um, at the time, they were doing a thing, Top of the Pops were doing a thing called Bubbling Under, where they would take a record or a single that wasn't in the chart. It was way out of the chart, but was showing some sort of movement at a, lower, a much lower level. They would normally only concentrate on top 40, top 30. So we, they didn't do it for long, but I was lucky enough to be in that period when they were doing it. And so they, I think I was number you know, 90 or 110, you know, nowhere really in the chart. And I was only there because they made a picture disc of it and people were buying the picture disc because it was a collector's item. People were buying it, didn't even know what the song was because it was a collector's item. Um, so that's that's how it got into like number 110. Um, but Top of the Pops picked us and put us on. So when I arrived on Top of the Pops, I had absolutely zero experience of really sort of playing live at all. Well, a little bit, I suppose, in punk clubs, but you know, nothing. I never played a gig as an electronic band ever. No one knew who I was, not none of the crew there or the audience that they have in there, no one. Um, and so you feel very out of place in a way, very uncomfortable. You know, I, I think I was in between David Bowie and Roxy Music. I can't remember for sure, but you know, real legendary, skillful, talented 
people and you just feel massively out of your depth really but it's you realize that it is probably the biggest moment of your life you know this is the opportunity that will make your life or will finish it you know as far as a charisma you, you do bad on top of the box you're probably never going back and so the enormity of that when you're very young uh, well for any age i would imagine you know it, it's an enormous pressure on you um matched by the excitement the enormous excitement that comes with it you know you've watched this program your whole life you know that it makes people's careers it's the biggest thing in britain you know and so it's hugely important and i am um, I was terrified and loved it in equal measure. You know, and I, when I got there, I said to them, because I'd noticed that Top of the Pops always had flashing lights. Everybody was always covered in lights. You know, everybody was always looking at the camera, no matter what they were doing. So I said to the people when I got there, I said, would you mind if we didn't have any colours? I just want white light, just white. And if we could have it coming from the floor as well as above me, so it, it creates shadows up my face. Um, I said, and I'm not going to look at the camera all the time. Just now and again, yeah, I'm going to look at the audience that are here, um, because I just get fed up with people who always look at the camera. They always smiled. Everyone smiled. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm not smiling. I'm not going to smile. You don't expect that. Um, <laughs> and so, and so, sort of, almost by accident, we looked very different to anyone else that was on the program. And my my nervousness came across as arrogance and aloofness and that seemed to strike a chord with people you know almost sort of i never ever did a robot dance or anything like that but i seemed to be somewhat cold and distant because i didn't smile um and it just worked you know it, it just really, really worked and like i say half of it was intention and half of it wasn't half of it was just accident really um the whole image thing, I, you know, the, the, the song was taken from another book of short stories I was writing. And so I just dressed like one of the characters from the stories. So this whole image thing was there, which I thought was the best way to front electronic music, you know, which wasn't particularly visual. Um, it was it was amazing, though. It was it was just one of those moments in your life, one of those key moments in your life that was special, very special. Now the Cars video, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm from the MTV. I'm 57, so we watch MTV. We watch MTV when it came out, like all day. And you talk to your buddies, you know, hey, oh my God, did you see this video? Did you see that video? Blood, you know. And the Cars video, you know, we were like, what, the, what, what, the, what the hell's going on? But we, we love it. Like we weren't used to that. What was what? And, and that, you know, I try to tell people, MTV would blow people up in in like in America. Because it'd be every everybody watched it. Did you think that the Cars video would have such an impact on the American audience? And and where did you get the red suit, the red leather outfit? Um, well, this, this, there was a, a shop in Kensington, West London, called Reflections that made leather stuff. And I actually found a black leather jumpsuit in there when I was looking for a jacket one day, um, and I loved it. I bought that. Uh, and I said to them, can you make these in red? I've only done in white and blue, red and a couple of the black ones, ultimately. Um, it looks a bit camp now, actually. But it's really good at the time. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, good decision at the time. Slightly embarrassing now. Um, sorry, I forgot what the rest of the question was. I've the video. lost it home. Did you know the video would, would make such a big impact in America? Oh, um, 
No, no, not not at all. Um, I wasn't even sure. You know, when I wrote Cars, I, 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 I hadn't even had any success. You know, Our Friends Electric and the Replicas album before the first one went to number one was still on its way when I wrote Cars. Um, by the time the video came along, I think Our Friends Electric had got to number one. So there was some expectation that you know there there'll be a, a a good reception for it. But I was still I was still sort of very um, regional. You know, I was still all of my thoughts and knowledge really was just British. You know, I knew how the British system worked. I knew what British labels worked and how the press worked and who was who liked different kinds of music. You know, I mean, I, I had a pretty good understanding of how it worked in Britain. Nothing whatsoever in Europe. Got no idea how things worked over there. Nothing in America or Canada or Australia. Nothing at all. So I was very, very, very. Um, naive about about the whole thing and, and lent very much on sort of guidance of the record labels that would you know, suggest what you should and shouldn't shouldn't do but making the video i was just trying to make something as sort of sort of fairly high tech to look at it i wanted the keyboards to be a feature of it i wanted to highlight the fact that electronic music was different so i didn't want any guitars on it you know just wanted loads of keyboard shots and you know, the, the, the idea for the, the pyramid thing that I'm singing under, that was an extension of the album cover. On the album cover that it comes from, there's a pyramid on a desk that I'm sitting at. So it was just keeping that theme going. And when we toured that um, that song, that album, a few months later, I had pyramids on stage, which had little radio-controlled robot things that would move around the stage and somebody would operate them from the side. So that whole pyramid thing, we kept going throughout that whole campaign for that, for that album. And Cars was, was a part of that. Now, what is it like when that when you know you have a big video, you have a song, your whole life changes, and you know you you're. It's not like you look like a heavy metal guy with the long hair and the tats. That you know you, you see him walking down Sunset Boulevard all the time. And you go, that guy's in a band. That guy's in a band. That guy's in a band. For you, what was it like? You're a young guy, and all of a sudden, your whole life must change completely because everyone recognizes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit weird, actually. Um... I, you know, I, I understand on the surface of it, if it was, that must be great. You know, everyone knows who you are and, you know, you probably think that there's loads of money and you know, supermodels are falling over themselves to get to you. And you know, that's kind of what I thought it was going to be like. <laughs> and it's not. It's not like that at all. It's it's um, it's a little bit darker than that, actually. You know, there, there were loads of really good things, you know, about becoming successful. Like, and it is very exciting. There are lots of great opportunities and you do live life to the full you certainly have the option to, to live life to the full but like i was saying about asperger's it, it comes with a price that you're i was largely unaware you know of, of what was coming and um you can't walk down the street anymore and it, it, this is slightly different and there is a, a, a different way of dealing with success in britain compared i think to the to the u.s um, I think in the US it's a much more it's a much healthier situation. It's celebrated more. Um, in Britain, it's kind of scorned. But walking down the street when you're successful in Britain is dangerous. You know, you you very unlikely to get out the end of the street without getting beaten to shit. Um, I had death threats, countless death threats. Um, oh, they're horrible. You know, I would not, could not 
go to the same places that I went to before, all the little restaurants that I would go to, the uh, the you know the pubs that you might hang out in before with your friends, all of that stops. My car got vandalised so many times I stopped using it. Uh, horrible, just horrible. So you have to learn how to enjoy the good bits and how to avoid the, the not-so-good bits. And I think it's particularly difficult when you first become successful because everything I've just said doesn't happen now. I've been famous in Britain 40-odd years. I'm like an institution there now. I mean, everyone is so different, so different. I can go anywhere now, and it's pretty much lovely all the time. And everyone knows who you are, and everyone just says hello and comes up and chats. And it's really, really nice. Couldn't have been more different when I first became successful. And I think part of the reason for that is that there's a great deal of um, there's a great deal of jealousy that you know, you know there's a lot of resentment you know because you know a few weeks ago you were just like us you know you had a job you you know driving the truck you, you were just like us and now look at you on the telly you got all that money and you know when you got a pretty girlfriend and I just think it winds people up to the point is they just want to give you a punch when you're walking past it's a thug culture kind of thing which um, Britain suffers from quite quite badly so you kind of deal with that a little bit and then yeah so then you start going to places where you are going to be safe because no one's going to beat you up where other celebs go and then they say oh you've been elitist too good for us now no i'm not too good for you but you keep beating the shit out of me when i when i go to where you are (laughs) can't win can't win you just trashed my car so now i'm not coming back to your pub yeah, I'm not. Yeah, it's it's mental. It's really mental. But it's all part of the experience. You know, it's it's um, it's a it's a fascinating journey. It it, it really is. You just got to keep your head together. You know, and see it for what it is. How have you kept your head together? Because you've had ups and downs. You know, it's like any musician. You've had your high points. You've you've had your low points. Your high points. Now you know you're making great music. You know, as you said, you don't consider yourself a pioneer, but you are a pioneer. Um, just so you know, that's what people know. <laughs> but so, how how have you kept your shit together through all these years? Because it's a roller coaster, and you don't know what the next stop's going to be. No. Um, well, I, I've, I, I'm very, very grounded. You know, I've never thought I was special. I've never thought I was God's gift to music or anything like that. Um, successful or not you know um i've always felt lucky always been grateful and i think that that helps you know that helps to deal with the disappointments because you sort of half expect them anyway you know you know going back to the confidence thing again unfortunately um and i think i just i just work really hard and i'm i'm stupidly optimistic you know no matter how bad things got there was always a part of me that thought i can get over this you know, I just keep keep at it, keep thinking, keep working, keep learning, you know. And the thing above all, above all else, is that I've always loved doing it. It wasn't about becoming famous that was the most important thing, although it was important. It was, it was doing something with your life that you would enjoy doing all of your life. You know, how many people in the world end up doing the jobs that they do don't choose them necessarily you know they might even be a good job 
you know, might not even be a bad job, but how many of them have really chosen the life that they want? Not many. Not many, really, I don't think. And so that was the important thing for me. You know, when I was a kid, I, our house used to look over this main London road. It's called a big commuter road into London. I would see these cars, nose to tail, you know, for, it's just stuck in this traffic for hours, going in and then coming out in the evening. That's their life. You know, and I think that's awful. Awful. I don't ever want that. You know, I want to be able to wake up in the morning and if it's a nice sunny day, think to myself, sod it. I'll work tomorrow. You know, I won't work today. I'm going to go out with the kids or go go for a walk or, you know, whatever. You know, to be able to, within reason, choose what you do each day and not be have a boss bringing you up saying, where are you? You're late. You know, clock in, clock out. You know, I couldn't imagine living like that. And, and so that's what was important to me. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be successful. But being able to choose the life, that was the most important thing. And that's the thing I appreciate the most now. You, you know, when I, when I wake up, I, I can pretty much do what I want. <laughs> you know, I, there are deadlines and there is a point where you're gonna, you can't quite do that. But by and large, I, I, I can choose to do what I want to do each day. And that is so valuable. One final question. How has your writing style evolved over the years? Has it, or are you pretty much the same writer you were from the beginning? I mean, I know you said the global warming was part of it, but you as a writer, has, as you've grown older and have had children and have dealt with the ups and downs of your career and had people beating the shit out of you when you're walking down the street for no reason because <laughs> they're jackasses, um, what, uh, how has your writing evolved? The actual process itself, very little, actually. You know, back in 79, I was sitting down at a piano um, coming up with some tunes, putting those tunes together, recording them, and then going to a studio and adding the layers on top until you end up with a finished song. Much the same. I still do pretty much exactly the same now. The, the, the difference is now that I'm, my piano is in the studio and I've got my own studio. You know what I mean? So I'll, I'll work on the tune, get it together, turn 90 degrees, sit at the desk, and then start to add the, the layers to it. But as a process really not changed at all what 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 is different is the person behind it the way i see the world and the way i think about the world my responsibilities my my fears and worries and hopes for the future all these things have become those of a of an older man compared to you know a teenager or a young man when, when i started and it is different you know the you the way you see things you're your place in the world, the people you love, the people you care about, it's, it changes as you get older. You know, a lot of the things that I'm writing about now are, are are based on my fears for the future because of what my children are growing into. You know, obviously I wasn't thinking about that when I when I was 21. So it, yeah, there is a there is a change, there's a maturity that comes with living. You know, the experiences that you have through your life will colour the way you see life and you know what it has to offer and its dangers and opportunities and so on. I, I'm sorry, I have one more question. I forgot. The face paint on Intruder, where did that come from? Because I know there's an app on Instagram and you can intruder yourself. Where did, where did yeah. that come from? 
Well, I actually don't know. <laughs> I just thought of it one day. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking I wanted to do some. I wanted to do something that was sort of could be a logo. It become like a symbol of the album, um, and I wanted to do something sort of quite dramatic visually, you know, with the image. Um, I've, I've still got the. I was sitting down one day, and I'm an awful artist. So I did a big round circle with two lines, and then that's my that's my head. You know, the worst drawing you've ever seen of a head. And I just with a pen, I just drew three lines across it. Yeah, that do that do. But I didn't ever try it out. We, I didn't ever experiment with it at home. I actually got to the photo session with my wife, and we tried it for the first time as we were starting the photo session. So. I really should have put a bit more effort into it, really, to make sure it worked before I got there. Has it been a whole waste of? Yeah, I, I built so much into that that idea, you know, so, but with no idea, no you know, no knowledge that it would actually work at all. But I like it. I think it I think it works really well, and it, it suits what the album is about, you know. And I just I designed a hoodie yesterday for the for the show, and um, using the using the three lines, you know. I like saying it's on the Instagram filter. I mean, it's, it's become the thing that I hoped it would. Well, that's awesome. And I want to thank you for taking the time. People, uh, go to Gary's website, GaryNewman.com. The album comes out the 21st. The, the special concert is June 17th. And I believe if you buy the album, you get the concert? Or was there anything going on there? Yeah, there's different packages. There. They're just going to add a T-shirt to it as well. So... Um, I actually don't even know what they are now because they, they're still working on it. But yes, I, I believe you. If you've already got the album, you can get some code. It's, I don't know. I leave that to the marketing people. people. <laughs> do that stuff. I just I just write songs, mate. I'm not very good at all that marketing stuff. So people, go check the album out. It is really good. I swear, you listen to, you listen to the song Intruder. My 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 hair was sticking up in my arms. I don't know the beat just got to me. It really hit me. I, I and, and I don't I don't I'm not lying about that. So people, please check out Gary. Go to GaryNewman.com. I'm sure uh, your Twitter it's at Gary Newman. I'm guessing, and that's N U M A N, not like N E W, like not like Newman from Seinfeld. It's N U M A N. Uh, so check him out. Go to my website too, coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.